Hey everybody, Jason Klom here with the Comedy on Vinyl Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for your patience. I know we missed a week. Uh, tonight's episode's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I sat down with Hal Sparks, and we talked about all of his different comedy influences. Originally, we sort of picked um, Wild and Crazy Guy to go over, which, uh, let alone the fact that we just covered it with Dave Hill not that long ago, uh, which is, it, it didn't really cover enough. So we talked about all his vinyl influences, and um, he tells an awesome story about how he first got introduced to vinyl, and that's what the show's all about. So it's a lot of fun, and we get into a lot of stand-up comedy theory, more really than uh, most people do. Uh, Hal has got this passion for stand-up that I think is incredibly awesome and uh, is, I won't say unusual, but he, I don't hear it that often on the show. Uh, go to HalSparks.com, check out all of his stuff, follow him at HalSparks on Twitter, etc., 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 um, one other thing is that um, I'm producing a show for the next, <laughs> I, it came out last last week um, here in Los Angeles, Jason Robert Brown's The Last Five Years. It's a wonderful musical. Uh, I'm producing it uh, with Carly Warden and uh, stars our uh, very own producer, Michael Warden, as the lead character, Jamie. Uh, also uh, stars the wonderfully talented Laura Zimmerman. Um, it's a great show. It's a lot of fun. Uh, limited run. It was last week, but it's also this week, July 25th through the 27th. Uh, that's Friday through Sunday at the Attic Theater. Uh, it's also the Chroma Loom Theater, 5429 West Washington, Los Angeles, California, 90016. Um, so it's uh, just check it out. It's, it's a wonderful show. It's a lot of fun. I'm not just saying it. I wouldn't be involved with something that I didn't enjoy. And uh, it's made me cry each time I've seen it. It's just a really, really wonderful show. It's brilliantly written anyway, but uh, Mike does a great job, and so does Laura. So come see that show if you would. Go to uh, Facebook, look up the last five years. It's uh, you know an upcoming event on the 25th or the 27th. So that's enough about me. Enjoy the episode. Uh, go see the last five years. Okay, that, so that wasn't quite enough, but there you go. Now I'm done. And uh, yeah, follow Hal Sparks on Twitter and enjoy him on this episode of Comedy on Vinyl. All right, let's do this. I'm more than ready. Everybody, thank you for joining us this week. Hal Sparks is with me. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. In this, at this place where we are. I won't say where we are, because that'd be... But you're drinking a nice hemisphere of tea. It's true. Are you relaxed? As long as you're relaxed. Bye. Um, bye. Thanks. Cheers. Nice meeting you. I'm uh, always relaxed, mm -hmm. you know, like a like a coiled snake, mm -hmm. you know? Sure. Tense, mm -hmm. but ready. Right. Yeah. Uh, by the way, that, that would have been me at, like... 17 or 18. Yeah? Mm -hmm. That yeah. voice tone you mean? Exactly. Or? No, yeah, me right. and the braces, and I dressed exactly like that mm -hmm. at 17. Well, you were a lovely little I girl. I was confused. Right. I was very confused. Mm -hmm. um, but let's, so, now, initially you said, because I pressured you, you said, wild and crazy guy. Right. Okay. Which, I think if people have been listening to the show regularly, will find it not atypical that a comedian who's also a musician picked it. But you had some other stuff in mind, too. Yeah, the, um... There, uh, it's one of those things where there's like a pentablet, a five-part, you know, uh, five albums that were really pivotal for different reasons. Mm -hmm. um, Black Ben the Blacksmith and Hank's Place, which are two Richard Pryor albums from the late 60s, early 70s, are his most caricatured work. Like, he does more characters and voices. You know, Black Ben the Blacksmith is arguably a seven-minute play he puts on on stage. Hank's Place is very similar. 
it was when he was still competing with uh, Bill Cosby in his own mind, right. but he had opened up to being a little more Red Fox in what he was doing, sure. and he, was, he wasn't shying away from the language or the content. And yeah. Instead of trying to make up some fake life about his dad, you know, and trying to make it more Cosby-esque, he started telling real stories about his upbringing and the fact that he would hang out in this place where people played craps and always ate fish sandwiches. And, mm -hmm. and that was, both those albums, I think, had Mudbone on them. Okay, yeah. And I used to do Mudbone from my mother. <laughs> Talk down um, do everything that I could at nine, ten years old telling Mudbone stories. <laughs> it was good. It was a good time. My mama was a good woman. She liked to listen to things that were lovely. So I would tell her Mudbone stories. And I would I would I would repeat the ones that were on the records uh -huh. verbatim, but I would also make up my own because we were in a very rural setting and it uh -huh. wasn't that where the opening line of one of them is when I first came down here from Tupelo, Mississippi, I came down here on a tractor. That's right. 450 miles on one tank of gas. And uh, since there were tractors all over the place in Kentucky where we were from, that just kind of rang true to me in a weird way. Yeah. And so I would just make stuff up about the neighbor's farm as Mudbone awesome. to my mom. Yeah. And, um, uh, and then... You know, so those two, and then the Hank's place. You know, give me a fish sandwich, baby, and um, that that kind of like mouth chewing character that he'd always kind of do. He'd always make up people that were chewing their lips when they talk to you, which is a very like it's not that unfamiliar in Kentucky and that kind sure. of thing. Uh, a lot of lower lip talkers down there, and so it made sense to me. Yeah. And then. Um, Oddly enough, um, you know, Eddie Murphy Delirious, in a kind of similar vein, was Eddie's real attempt to sort of cop that energy of those early Richard yeah. Pryor records. When Richard had drifted in his later life into basically talking about showbiz and fame and yeah. dealing with stuff. And that's the kind of material that least interests me. And we're probably also pivotal in a negative, in some ways, in what kind of material I would do, because I don't do any material in my act about show business. Sure. I don't do anything about what it's like to be on a television show, people I've met, all yeah. that kind of stuff. I sort of have a chip on my shoulder about it, and I resent it openly when when people go, so I'm at a party with blah, 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 or whatever, or I was on Oprah, and I blah, blah, blah. And yeah. it just, like, as an audience member, that just yanks me out of stuff. 100%. Unrelatable. Yep. Um, then it's like, it's like a humble brag. Yeah. It just kind of is annoying. So, for me, it, it was really important to just be real about your opinions and eventually it became less about where you are to what you feel like needs to be addressed. Yeah. And that was Wild and Crazy Guy in a, you know, in a sort of an obtuse, the world is ridiculous and I'm going to fuck with it. Mm-hmm in front of you. Yeah. I'm going to be in, you know, Steve Martin had said, and I remember reading this when I was little, that his goal was to create the kind of humor that you had with five friends who were all joking around together and you had kind of a shorthand. Yes. Yeah. And you didn't need to explain everything, you would just do it. Right. And I, there's a beauty in that. It is nearly impossible to create and continue, which is probably why it was so frustrating for him ultimately. Yeah. yeah. And what he did create was a ultimately became uh, in doing a wild and crazy guy on stage mm -hmm. was a character that he'd come up on SNL and he became 
along with people like Larry the Cable Guy and yeah. other people like that who took a character they did on television and started doing it for their live audiences. Right. Yeah. Which is a monumentously popular moment for a comedian yeah. and also the death knell for your taking yourself or other people taking you seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And he took didn't take himself seriously. Sure. And you know and you know in the case of Say Bobcat in the Police Academy movies. I was a huge Bobcat Goldthwait fan. Sure. I mean, sh uh, um, uh, share the warmth, pivotal. Yeah. And I used to do, I did Mudbone for my mom, and I would do Bobcat for my dad. Oh, because I couldn't understand it. And I would like welcome people into the house that way, you know. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, my dad's upstairs. He's still in the bathroom. I don't know why. You know, that kind of stuff. And so I would just, you know. Yeah. And I and that's that's dialed back because I don't want to scare the people in the in the place we're imbibing. <laughs> um, holy shit. Yeah. Uh, sorry. That just and then the other one was, and I guess, the, you know, was comics line. Okay. Carlin affected me, but in an overall sense. Mm -hmm. But Billy Crystal's A Comics Line was a special I'd seen on HBO. Okay. And he seemed to, and it really wasn't an album later, it was more like it just lived as the special, although I had the album, okay. and I would listen to it, but you kind of had to see it okay. to yeah. get what the fuck was going on. Uh -huh. But he essentially took every impersonation, every skill set he had, and it was like an audition tape. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't give a shit, and he crowbarred every element of his personality, past, everything, into one show. Yeah. He's like, I'm doing Muhammad Ali, I'm doing an old Jewish man, I'm doing more Amsterdam, I'm doing, I, I just feel like, anything, tapping, anything I could do, I'm throwing it in this show so you fuckers know who I am. That's insane. Wow. Yeah. It's a very untoward uh, place that we're in. Keel over here all the time. Sorry about the ambulance noise. I mean, it's one of those things where, like, that's an album, and I haven't heard that album or seen the special, and I really want to now, but it does seem like that's a thing that could walk a line where, like, that could be cloying as fuck, but it also sounds like because he's such a, he's so amazing, yeah. that that has to have blown your mind. Like, yeah. How I old mean, were you when you first saw it? 13, 14. Okay. Perfect day. 14 okay. years old. Yeah. And I started doing stand up at 15, and I had that on. I had that on video cassette, mm -hmm. and in many ways, it was my entrance into at that point what was the bellwether for doing stand-up in clubs. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, you know, people were still shoegazing and sure. talking to the floor, yeah, and or or, or being Emo Phillips or Stephen Wright. These were the, your two arms. Yeah, you could, you know, you could be. Kinnison, you could be Bobcat, you could be a, like a character type, mm -hmm. or you could walk around gazing at the tips of your shoes going, what else do we want to talk about? Yeah. yeah. And I always leaned in the direction of the character types. Yeah. I loved Kinnison, I loved Bobcat especially. Mm -hmm. I loved his ability to, like, the point in Share the Warmth where he walks off stage, uh -huh. sits down in the audience and goes, you suck! <laughs> <laughs> If I wanted to see this shit, I would have went to the Greyhound station. Like that, to me, was so funny. The Greyhound station. Like that's his dissection of his own act. If I wanted to see this shit, I would have went to the Greyhound station. What were you doing at 15 on stage then? I need to know. I started, um, because I started in what was called original comedy and forensics, competition acting okay. and drama in school, you did what was called after dinner speaking or original comedy, 
which was like Toastmasters, and you had to do these speeches, funny thing happened to me on the way to the dinner tonight uh -huh. things, and you had these, they had these bars you had to hit, and it was, the guys who won were punny as fuck. It was just sure. so contrite, and, mm -hmm. and I was a stand-up fan. I mean, I, you're talking about a guy who, my, my dad fixed two mandolins for a guy when I was seven years old. Mm -hmm. And the guy didn't have enough money to pay my dad, so he, instead he traded him a crate of records, LPs, Holy a crate, shit. like a, a you know a double long milk crate just stacked with albums. There's probably a hundred records in there, and a full on 30, 35 of them were comedy records. Godfrey Cambridge, uh, Shelley Berman, Secret Life, Life of the Primate, and other stories. Um, a collection of old radio comedy, including Groucho Marx and stuff, on a, on metal platter records. Like the, oh, shit, the vinyl yeah. was actually imprinted onto a, a metal platter to keep it solid for mm -hmm. a long time, and it it worked. Yeah. Um, all of all the early Richard Pryor stuff, including uh, was it something I said? In other words, that as a white person I can't say, uh, which is not an album if you don't know. It's just the, <laughs> the code word for the album. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, uh, all the Carlin records up to that point, uh, cool. especially Toledo Window Box, which sure. was his trans transitional album. Mm -hmm. um, that's a lot of that's a lot of comedy. Red work. Fox. Uh, shit. Now did yeah. your dad let you listen to all this? Oh yeah, stuff? He didn't, all of it. Well, they. My, uh, due to uh, poverty, mm -hmm. uh, I had a great upbringing in that mm -hmm. my parents left me the fuck alone. Sure. Sure. They did not micromanage my life, yeah. nor could they, because they both had to work just to keep us afloat. And yeah. so I was alone a good deal of the time with a record player and a lot of filth. Yeah. Which is yeah. the perfect way to raise a child. <laughs> and as the father of a three-year-old, I have plans for this young boy. No, I bet. Yeah. I um, bet. That being said, um, when I started doing stand-up at 15, uh, I was performing in these things for class, and it had to be kind of curtailed towards school, or I wasn't going to win anything. Was the idea like my my drama teacher and everybody's going, okay, if you're going to work on an act, have it be something relatable to the kids. They yeah. won't give you something that's too adult. So I wrote an act about school, the school day, like my classes, and the best part of it was about driver's ed, uh, and because uh, I'd learned how to drive when I was 13, and I actually do a bit in my act now about it. That's, like that I furthered essentially about That's the first awesome. time I ever drove when I was 13 years old in a car because my mom was sick and I had to go to the store and back in a stick shift with my mom just basically explaining it to me in a fevered haze oh after, right before she passed out from, and vomited into a bucket. Oh, there was no food in the house and so I had to drive and that was it. It was as simple. In a Jeep uh, Wrangler, like an old used Jeep Wrangler, just had to drive it down an old country road to a general store and buy some food and come back. Good Ooh. luck. Enjoy. Here's the keys. Uh huh. And I, there was like none of the jokes I do now are in that act, but the the excitement was there. Uh huh. And I meant what I was saying. Instead of writing cute punny things, yeah. I was genuinely pissed, and that was probably the value. But I did the show. I did that set at 27 different meets. Uh huh. And I got a fourth place once. And with that act. Mm -hmm. Uh, I entered the Funniest Teenager in Chicago contest, which was a stand-up competition for teenagers. Uh -huh. And I was, there was two categories, uh, uh, 16 and under, and, and 16 and above, 17 and above. Uh -huh. And I won second place overall, and because you couldn't win first as one of the youngers, okay. and I won first place in my age category with that act. 
the next year, I said, fuck it, I'm not doing the show they want mm -hmm. me to do, because I didn't do well anyways. I did what, I played by the rules, and they still lost, so better to just fail on my own terms. Did the exact same thing. Went to all the meets, got a fourth place once. Same judge. Liked me. It was like, uh -huh. yeah, but you know, it's not, it didn't do this, it didn't do this, it didn't do this. I didn't do the checklist. Okay. That year, I entered the Funniest Teenager in Chicago contest and I won. And I was on all the networks and I, like, I, it was a big deal yeah. in Chicago, especially. And then, and the next year I came back, nobody was doing, uh, regular afternoon speaking. Everybody was doing stand-up. All, all the kids were doing stand-up, stand-up, stand-up. It was like clear. Everybody was gunning for the next year. Wow. And I was, yeah, I did a presentation at the next one because I wasn't going to re-enter again. Of course. But I got an agent out of it. I got stand-up gigs. I was booking and touring at 16, 17 years old. I was driving to Wisconsin on the weekends, mm -hmm. to Michigan and Indiana and wherever I could go in between. There was a club in Louisville, Kentucky that's no longer there back then. And my, my, family, my mom still lived in Kentucky, so I could do three places in Kentucky Okay. when I would go down to visit her. Yeah. When you Were you at the time aware of, uh, you know, at least the sort of some parallels with Eddie Murphy starting out so damn young and, and you know? No, I didn't know his background at all. At I just knew time, that he okay. popped into, I knew that he basically, his audition for SNL was like, I'm Eddie Murphy and what's up? <laughs> and I decided that's how I'm going to roll. Yeah. Because I'd also... Like, I don't not favor Steve Martin a tad physically. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a little bit about me where mm -hmm. you could kind of go, okay, hey, it looks like a young Steve Martin or yeah. something at some point. That's not that odd. And so I bonded with what he looked like as a kid going, all right, this is a road. I can, there's, a go, there's a precedent. There's somebody who yeah. looks like me who's done it. In the same way probably Eddie did with, uh, with Richard. Yeah. So what I did love about Steve was his false bravado. Yeah. That whole, uh, I'm sorry, you don't speak Latin. <laughs> that whole, you know, just, you know, his uh, just co comic arrogance. Mm -hmm. I really loved. And so I would always come from that sort of point of view. What I didn't realize early on, which helped me because I was short, was that it was better for me, it would work better for me ultimately than it would with Steve across the board, because he had to do a character to sell it. The wild and crazy guy is that that arrogance, but played with an accent so it's safer. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The, it, when he does it, like even now he does the, uh, like with his band, mm -hmm. he goes, okay, what song is next? And he pulls out his iPad and he starts going through the set list and they're all holding up pieces of paper and he goes, oh, you guys don't have iPads? It like, it's, it. yes, oh, it's still, it's so funny. But it's because he's taking the piss in the abstract, because everybody, you know, you know, there's a window where his hair went white between two albums. Yeah, yeah. And it was all fear. If you read the book, uh -huh. it's clear that he, it was like a nightmare uh -huh. that turned his hair stark white right. overnight. Yeah. Um, the performing scared the shit out of him. Understandable. It's insane. Yeah, and, and I didn't feel that fear. I remember reading Born Standing Up and going, this is the best description of what stand-up is ever like that I've read as far as the mechanics of what's going on in your actual head while you're doing it. And yet I disagree with him on emotion entirely. Really? I am not frightened by this process at all and I felt bad for him that he was and I did not understand why because he was clearly skilled, he was clearly aware of his skill. Yeah. Yeah. Later, I would realize that he's chasing Woody Allen's career, and 
uh, has always been arguably one step behind Woody Allen in what he wants to do. Right. If you watch what Steve does, Woody does it, and then Steve starts doing it. With the exception of directing, yeah. but the movie content from uh, Cruel Shoes coming out after Without Feathers, uh -huh. and, uh, um, uh, and I forget the other uh, Woody book, but they look the same, the type was the same, black with white lettering and the yeah. same font. Um, L.A. Story is arguably, in many ways, his Annie Hall, mm -hmm. yeah. with uh, um, Woody pulling from vaudeville, but Steve pulling from Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The um, Woody doing big band, uh, definitely. You know, clarinet music. Steve using banjo mu music, but mm -hmm. if you arguably listen to the first song in L.A. Story, it could fit in the beginning of any Woody Allen movie, but for the instrumentation. Mm -hmm. Um. And then Woody goes back to playing and touring with his band. Steve goes back to playing and touring yeah. with his band. Uh -huh. If Woody Allen started doing stand-up again, we would see a, stand a Steve Martin stand-up tour. God, that'd be amazing. Yeah, it would. <laughs> a lot, it's fairly common for people to talk about their parents giving them comedy albums. Yeah. This is different in that it's not like, at least it doesn't seem like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that your dad was introducing you to, hey, here's an album I love. It's no, here's a stack of albums. Yeah. You get to make your own taste. Yeah, he didn't actually. I'm not even sure he was aware that they were in there or care. Okay. He, he okay. took the. He was at, more interested in the bluegrass records that were in there. Okay. And could kind of piss off the rock stuff that was in there and didn't care. Mm -hmm. And that it was just like, okay, I'll take that for that. That's yeah. all. Was it he was, a luthier? Is that what he did? Yeah. Well, no, he doesn't build guitars. He does mm -hmm. fretwork. Oh, okay, does fretwork. Okay. Okay. So, um, and he's done it for Vince Gill, and he's done it for Bela Fleck, and he's done awesome. it for Sam Bush, and for. Tons of country artists and mm -hmm. uh, big monkey mucks in that world, awesome. especially the instrumentationists, the guy who you know, the guys who really take it seriously. Sure. A lot of them tend to go to my dad. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it's, it's awesome. We had, I, and Steve Martin actually bought two banjos from my dad at when I was young, and um, and and uh, like I, I so wanted to meet him, but it never worked out that he came and got yeah. them or anything like that. But they, were, yeah. Um, and I once tried to meet Steve when he was filming Planes, Trains, and Automobiles in Chicago, and they were at the Wilmette L stop, uh -huh. the end of the line, yeah. shooting the scene where you know uh, he runs to his house, you mm -hmm. know, whatever. Little short little thing, or he runs back to get John Candy. Like yeah. he tries to find him there, and he's gone. And I, I went up to the guard, and I was like, "Can you tell Steve my name's Al Sparks, and I'm a comedian here, and I, I, uh, I, my dad once sold him two banjos, and blah blah blah." And mm -hmm. the response was. He's very tired, and he doesn't really even play the banjo that much anymore. <laughs> I was like, that's a little piece of information I didn't really need. They yeah, right. kind of why rub it in. Right, right. Oh. Um, yeah. I think they may have made that up. I don't know that that Maybe. would have been Steve Maybe. saying Maybe. Just it. anything to, sh to... Get me out of that's there. That's too bad. Yeah. By the way, years later, I would speak to him uh -huh. at the Comedy Awards, uh -huh. where he gave the greatest acceptance speech, I think, in the history of acceptance speeches, mm -hmm. um, where he couldn't remember his agent's name on purpose. It was genius. Um, and he just flubbed them out. Great. Uh, again, another example of that like that false arrogance mm -hmm. uh, comedy ploy, you know? And um, he, everybody warned me, don't talk to Steve, because he, you won't... It'll ruin it for you because uh -huh. he's very kind of sure. reserved and he's shy and he just you know just don't get your hopes up because he just yeah. doesn't talk to people unless your friends with, you know and da 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 and I'm sitting at the table and he had just made a quote about talk soup uh -huh. and he said irony in American media lives and dies on talk soup I think was the quote okay. and it was while I was hosting mm -hmm. and um, it was clear that he was watching and mm -hmm. watching while I was on yeah and that's awesome yeah and it was a compliment. Mm -hmm. And it was spectacular. Yeah, uh, you know that he had mentioned it and cared. Yeah, 
and um, like we're the only place you can find true irony in the in the entire. It's about right. Yeah, and I wanted to go up and say thank you, but everyone's like, "Don't." <laughs> yeah. And I was like, what, "Fuck it, I'm gonna take this opportunity." And you know why I'm gonna take this opportunity? Because I had the chance to tell Madeline Kahn that I thought she was fucking funniest person ever, mm -hmm. and was blindly bulletproof, purely funny. That woman yeah. was funny on a cellular level. Yes. And I saw her eating at Kate Manalini's by herself before I was anybody in like 1990 or 91 or something like that. And she was sitting there alone or whatever. And I wanted to go over and tell her. And I didn't. She was dead like a year later from cancer because she... And I was like, is she eating alone because she just needed to get out of the house because she just found out? Like, I should have walked up to her. I should have been there. So I don't stop myself anymore. Understandable. Yeah. And so I walked over to Steve and I was like, I don't care what this goes down. Even if he's a dick, I'm going to say hi or whatever. Not only was he not a dick, he was awesome, and he just started blathering. He just started going blah 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 blah, blah and talking to me. I didn't, I couldn't tell you a word he fucking said. I have nearly a photographic memory. I couldn't tell you what the fuck he said at all because I was so shocked that he was speaking. All I heard was blah 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 blah, blah, blah. and and I, inside I was like, smile, jerk. He's talking to you. Like it was the, it was such an eighth grade date moment where I'm like picking up some girl at the prom, you know, for the prom or. I was like, I can't believe Steve Barton's saying stuff. And I was like, listen, asshole, he's saying things right. that matter. I, I, I wow. couldn't tell you what the fuck not. Because I was so prepped that he wouldn't. So the other thing is I don't give a shit what other people say about the opinion of another person. Because your experience of them won't be the same experience. No. No. As my mother used to say, consider the source. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Right. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So, um... Back to albums. Yes, why, to, but I mean, you you got to make your own taste in a way. I mean, was it? I mean, did you feel yourself influenced by, to listen to anything in particular? Or were you just listening and listening? I and listened. Listening? Yeah, there was. Um, Godfrey Cambridge had two records in there, and I can't remember the titles offhand, but I still mm -hmm. have them. Okay. Um, and they were very much. You could see the bridge between what Pryor did later uh -huh. and what. Uh, Cosby was doing it to great effect on television. Sure. There was a middle zone where he was making a bigger point about being black in America mm -hmm. than uh, but was being as in the zone where Richard would go, but more acceptable in how he delivered it yeah. and comfortable on stage, more showmany mm -hmm. than you know in the vein of what Cosby was doing. He yeah. was very comfortable as a stage performer. Yeah. It never struck me that Richard was. Richard seemed very, especially in the early days, shy. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You watch that stuff, he's like hiding behind a cigarette. That yeah. cigarette that he's smoking in the uh, Live and Smoking might as well be as big as a tree. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, it's true. And he just ducking behind it. Mm -hmm. um, so, Godfrey Cambridge had a big influence. The sketch stuff on Sh on Shelley Berman's Sex Life of the Primate and Other Stories mm -hmm. was great because most of them seemed about to be about a dude trying to pick up a chick and uh -huh. get her in bed yeah. using old-fashioned 60s politics. Mm -hmm. Like, jokes about... Like, there's a, there's a bit on that album about how this woman can't sleep with him because he looks like Adlai Stevenson. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. That's the only reason she won't... And they're close to having sex, but she backs off. Why? What is it? You look like too much like Adlai Stevenson, and she's got a political problem with it. That's amazing. Yeah, I love it. And the sex life of the primate is about this guy who marries an ape and how it's going. Um, 
so to like it's it's a pretty fucked up record for oh. a nine year old or an eight year old definitely to to, definitely but great yeah um yeah Toledo window window box was a big deal mm-hmm. my my dad and his buddies would play bluegrass till about four in the morning and smoke pot and I would fall asleep probably contact buzzed under sure. their seat now that I think of it but I've never imbibed I don't drink I don't smoke I don't do drugs I never mm-hmm. will but I had tremendous respect for the effect that the drug had on Carlin in many ways sure. and that it was a pivotal mind it was a it freed him from what he thought was an internal mental cage mm-hmm. my feeling always is is that you should just do the effort to free yourself from that mental cage otherwise you're going to be trapped by the next one and the next of one course. and the next one because, you know, it's not your get-out-of-jail-free card. Right, right, yeah. Um, so, that, I mean, that was a big one. Toledo in a box was amazing. So, when, so you had this, I mean, was there, for you, was there a sense that you were going to do anything with it? Or was it just for you, this little thing that you had, this entertainment? Was it an escape? What was it for you? Could you tell it was an education? No. no. It was, it, no there was no... I didn't understand conceptually. Growing up in Kentucky, I had no idea you could make a living yeah. art. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, so, and I've, I've mentioned this in interviews before, but I the best... Like the best example I can give is of when I would listen to a comedy record is that I thought it was like an album of bird song. My grandfather would have these albums of bird song, uh-huh. you know, and it was just ridiculous. So <laughs> put on this album and it's like the red-breasted whippoorwill, and you just. Hear, <laughs> my dad would, my grandfather would just put these on and listen to them, and then go outside and go, you know, put his ear on. Oh, there's one. There's the, you know, uh-huh. the, you know, the the, the, the chestnut crested. Harbinger or whatever the fuck, <laughs> and, uh, and, and and you know some nonsense, and uh, it just it fascinated my grandfather, and he would do them really well. But um, to me, it was like that's what a comedy record was. I had no idea someone was getting paid for this shit. I just thought somebody walked in like you know, gathering of people, like at a state fair, and some guy just decides to stand up and yeah. tell some jokes yeah. because that's the kind of guy he is. Mm-hmm. And somebody just taped it because he he does it every year. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what I yeah. thought it was. Yeah. And um, like a town crier being recorded or something. Yeah. What about music, though? I mean, if your dad was dealing with musicians a lot, did you have a better concept of that as a thing? Or was it still... Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, I knew concerts went on. I knew there were tickets to be sure. bought and sold. But the idea that a guy would get paid to stand and tell jokes was of course. ridiculous yeah. by comparison. Yeah. You had to pay the band. They had a lot of shit to drive over. Yes. Yeah. They had to gas it's up the truck. It's an obvious skill. It's a yes. thing that you can see has been developed. Yeah. I can't do that naturally. You have to go to school for it in some mm-hmm. cases, or you have to study long hours. Stand-up just seemed like an accident mm-hmm. when you don't know. Yeah. And so in listening to the albums, I was just like, that's fun. I'll do that with my friends. And so, like a lot of kids, I would quote the albums to my friends, mm-hmm. do entire sides of an album in a big recitation standing outside of the band room or at, the, at lunch and whatever. And it, it wasn't until I moved to Chicago that I really grasped that it was a, a skill set and that it was a job, yeah. a real job, a career you could have. Because in Chicago, they treat it like the job that it is. Like, entertainment in Chicago is treated like um, uh, some sort of like mid-level random company. Yeah, yeah. Like you just you start at the bottom, like you know, mailroom gigs, mm-hmm. and then you work your way up to middle management sure, gigs as a yeah. feature act, and then one day you get to head the company and you're the headliner. Yeah, yeah. There's no magic. Nobody taps you on the shoulder and says, "Hey, kid, you got moxie." You uh-huh. know, you don't. 
Do you get picked up at a fucking lunch counter? That doesn't happen. Right. What happens is you discover you have an affinity for something, not a talent, but a, but a love for it, because yeah. that's really what you need. What most people mistake for talent is an early love for something. Sure. Because an early love for it will give you the drive to get through the shitty parts. Yeah. Yeah. Talent is really just falling in love with something before other people. Uh-huh. So you get a jump start on working it out. And that affinity allows you to get through year three, which in whatever you're trying to do, no matter what you want to try, do you want to play the guitar, you want to learn a foreign language, you want to figure, be an accountant, year three fucking sucks. Yep. Yep. It's For a lot of people, it's yellow belt into green belt. Mm-hmm. The world is full of yellow belts because year three sucks and passing the, that third test is a pain in the ass. And it's lost the magic because it's not as instantaneous and kind of full of challenge. It's a different level. It's more minute challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people just give up. Yeah, especially if you understand it more and the magic seems to be gone if you don't know how to capture it again. You think you if you think you've got it. Well, if you have the illusion that it was magic in exactly, the first place, exactly. you didn't. You're not even aware of where you got the skill. Mm-hmm. If you can really think about, oh shit, I used to do this in front of my friends. Oh mm-hmm. shit, I used to do this in front of my family. Yeah. Oh, that's why I can dance because we didn't have a television set and I always had to dance. Right. That's why I can dance in real life. Yeah. I'm a good dancer. The reason I'm a good dancer is because we were poor as fuck. Yeah. And you would just, we would just turn on music in the house and dance. That's awesome. That's that's what you do mm-hmm. when you don't have a, when you're it. Mm-hmm. So stand up is kind of a similar thing until I moved to Chicago, and in Chicago, it's like okay, start on the bottom. Where you you know, it's almost like why I say there are no hecklers anymore. There are no hecklers because hecklers are not drunks who just kind of interject mm-hmm. or verbally boo a crap comedian, yeah. which is not a heckler. That's a disgruntled customer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're allowed. Yeah. If you suck, they're allowed to say so. Yeah. That's not being heckled. The heckler is a local comic who has yet to make it in the scene there. Yeah. Who has seen the national headliner come through a couple years in a row. And every time he comes through, he does the same fucking act. <laughs> like touring comics tend yeah. to do. Yeah. And by this time, he's seen it and he knows it. Mm-hmm. And so he knows right when to go... Because he crossed the road, like right before the punchline. <laughs> yeah. And you can capsize the guy's act by yelling his punchlines or interrupting his sure. punchlines because you know when they're coming because it's so fucking sticky. Yeah. And you're so tired. And what you do is you would do that back in the day. You would heckle that way. Mm-hmm. You'd totally cave in a guy's act. Yeah. Because it was the same hack bullshit. And then afterwards, you would go up to the, you know, like you come up two days later. Mm-hmm go to the club owner and go, hey man, I'd love to get up here. I was, you know, I don't know if you noticed, but I, I got a bunch of laughs the other night when I fucked with the guy here. Right. He goes, all right, I'll give you three minutes, but not when that guy's here. <laughs> and that's what you would do. You yeah. would become the local comic who would elbow your way into the scene. Yeah, there thought was about it that Free open mics and stuff and the ubiquity of comedy as a career. That's mm-hmm. what you did. And I used to do it at Zany's. I, yeah. you know, I even apologized to Skip Reparis at one point for shitting a hole in his act <laughs> when I was 16 because uh-huh. I'd come over from Second City and I was watching his act and I'm like this motherfucker and I yelled at one point I feel like I've died and gone to summer camp <laughs> and that was the I got a huge laugh from the crowd from it Shit. yeah because he was a guitar comic uh-huh. and um and that got me an opening set like a week later yeah 
and then I would just go do opening sets whenever I could. It's crazy. Yeah, that's the most sensitive uh, version or uh, perspective on the heckler I think I've ever heard. A lot oh, yeah, of comics the... are very uh, protective of that, of themselves and what of their craft. From, they, well, from they hecklers? Just, they, yeah, they think in general they shouldn't be ever interrupted or challenge like that and I get it I get that's it. like a, that's like a massage therapist saying I never want anybody on the table to get a Charlie horse sorry sometimes it's gonna fucking happen yeah, yeah. and anybody who blames the audience is like a massage therapist going I'm sorry I can't do anything for you you're too tense yeah yeah that's your job man get over it and quite frankly like Jamie Kennedy's movie heckler is the biggest fucking piece of shit travesty of, towards comedy in the world because a he sucked and deserved being called out uh-huh it wasn't anonymous. It turned into this thing about anonymous online people. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it wasn't anonymous. It was a guy who was speaking up because Jamie's set was rambling and not funny. Yeah. Right. And again, that's not a heckler. That's one of your customers going, I've seen this and this is not good. This is not a good representation of your best. And I paid to see you bring it. And you're yeah. not, clearly. And you seem to think it's my fault. Right. So fuck you. Uh-huh. That's not a heckler. Sure. A heckler is a guy is streaming along doing a great job with the audience, and this guy decides to derail it yeah. for his own entertainment in that, in that regard. Or to take the piss or to get his buddies in on the action. Yeah. Or to just, because he needs the attention blindly, which is usually your garbled, drunk luck or yeller, right. which is still not a heckler, too. It's just a sad person in need of attention. Sure. But, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm not kidding about Heckler. I think that's, that's a fucking joke. I mean, arguably, that's why... That's, the premise of that movie was so shitty, that's why it dovetailed into talking about, like, YouTube commenting uh-huh. as the main premise of the second half of the movie. Because it wasn't enough to sustain that he had been unfairly, you know, compromised in his performance by this guy. And arguably, most people who watched that, when he brought the guy back into the room and asked him, uh-huh. the guy was right. Uh-huh. Uh, that's a good point. I couldn't finish it. I no, I couldn't finish the yeah. side. No, no, I, I got it. If I if I wasn't in the industry and I didn't know Jamie Kennedy from a hole in the wall, I'd have shit a hole in his act too, mm-hmm. from that guy's perspective. <laughs> Out of just my desire, my love of stand up. Yeah, that's another thing too. Is like I don't hear of it here as often, and I don't know if it's, I don't know what the difference is. It's just probably just a personality thing. But you take it for lack of a better word, very seriously. It's a very like, it's such a strong craft for you. I don't hear it that often. Does it come from like? It being hammered in your head from such a young age, or is it just... I think it was my early love of Carlin. Yeah. And his just doing it till he died. Yeah. Mixed with my Steve Martin being my favorite, arguably, at a time, and bailing out right when it was good, mm-hmm. and feeling kind of betrayed slightly by that. Yeah. And I was like, hey, fuck you. <laughs> Everybody loved you. Everybody was getting what you were doing. Yeah. You had no reason to not do what you did. And I, to this day... I have always had a chip on my shoulder about the the sets, what I call seven minutes to stand up. Mm-hmm. The guys who have a seven minute, like, tonight show act, arguably, yeah. that yeah. can be built, structured, conceivably, into a stand up, into a stand up based sitcom. Uh huh. Yeah. You know, or or what I call the like the sort of in, the ingrown toenail of racist stand up, which is. You stand up there as an Italian, and all you talk about is being Italian, and your yeah. parents are Italian, and my yeah. kids are Italian, and this is what Italians are like, and we're Italian, so we blah, blah, blah. And you create your own stereotype uh-huh. and reinforce it over and uh-huh. again. And 
And it doesn't go just to race. It can go to, I'm the fat guy, and these are the fat jokes, and yep. I'm the bald guy, and these are the bald jokes. And this the South, etc., etc., etc. Right, right, right. And I will, and, and defending it while shitting on it at the same time. And I would rather, if you hate it, call it out. If you like it, mm-hmm. defend it. Yeah. yeah. Against everybody else's stuff, even if it's a funny defense. Sure. Um, you know, my argument has always been in the stuff that I talk about that I, I'm not shameless, I'm shame free. I don't, I don't believe in guilty pleasures because I don't believe in feeling guilty for anything that gives me pleasure. Because sure. yeah. fuck you. Mm-hmm. Listen to rat <laughs> your ears. Uh-huh. What do you care? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, you know, and the, the end of that joke, of course, is, you know, you know what a guilty pleasure is? Great. If you find pleasure from that, uh-huh. you're fucking guilty. Uh-huh. Go to jail. Yeah. But don't equate that with the fact that I like chocolate-covered strawberries on occasion. Yeah. Like, shut up. I'm, I'm not going to hide it. Yeah. So it's a... That... It is an art form. Sure. And it is the only singular art form left. Yeah. Especially that is... Stand-up is the only art form that has one proper response. Uh-huh. That's true. Yeah. You can listen to poetry and you can be you can move be moved quietly or loudly. You can clap or snap or you can gasp or you can remain quiet and intense. You can have a tear roll down your face and it's still appropriate to the circumstance. Yeah. You can watch a dramatic movie and you can cry or you can you know remain silent or you can even laugh because you don't think it was portrayed quite well or sure. you find it absurd that someone is upset by these things whatever it is yeah and it's appropriate yeah but stand up the only and i don't the stand up is the only art form where the pro, only proper response is i get air i get your diaphragm to convulse and bark air out of your neck mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's it yeah if you clap it's not the same fucking thing i'm right. not doing stand up for applause yeah and it's the occasional applause isn't a bad thing. Mm-hmm. There was a certain point in Carlin's career where he was getting more applause than laughs, sure. and it annoyed him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's the, there's that kind of like if you're if you're a comic who has a very strong point of view, but that point of view is maybe political, somewhat political. Because I mean, I know that you know you've got some strong political opinions because yep. you know you do. You're yeah. human, right? But you, you don't. You're not afraid to talk about them, right? Um, there are some comics who are very much about the purity and you know what whatever makes people laugh laugh but sometimes that becomes an excuse to pander that becomes an excuse to do shit it also it more becomes an excuse to run from the things you really want to talk about yeah it's you just it's avoidance behavior there are like in the political stuff that I do what I discovered was especially during the Bush years in the early bit of the Iraq war when I was having to rebuild my stand up from scratch because my act before then had, by accident of birth and circumstance, been based on the premise that I'm I'm right, but no one fucking listens to me. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well. That's the essence of what I'm talking about. That's mm-hmm. it. I'm a nobody, but I'm right about this. Yeah. And that fueled a lot of the anger and energy that was in my act and what made it work. Sure. The problem is once you get on television, whether you deserve it or not, everybody listens to you. Yeah. And so it sounds false. Mm-hmm. In the same way that once Steve Martin became really popular, the false bravado. When he became a bit of a sex symbol and was, you know, dating Bernadette Peters and right. was sought after, mm-hmm. you know, it, him going up there and acting brash for a while was a bit of a conceit and didn't work. Yeah, yeah. your own shift of fate and fame took it away from you. Now that he's older and he's a gentleman, 
you know, comedian, mm -hmm. he can go back to being, hi, I'm sure. there because he's older and there's this idea that you're past your prime and you're allowed to make, take no. a piss. Yeah. Yeah. So, I had this whole act about, like, why isn't anybody listening to me? And it was based on that fervor. Yeah. And I still feel that internally, mm -hmm. but it's not received by the audience the same way. So I had to rebuild from scratch once I got on Talk Soup and, yeah. and, and the like. Um, I've been able to get it back because I'm seen sort of artistically as an outsider because of Queer's Folk and because yeah. of now I'm on a kids show. That Saget kind of energy allows you to do whatever the fuck you want yeah. to. Yeah. Or if you're trapped, the idea is you're trapped on a kids show so you can do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. and, the reality is I'm on, a, I'm on the first mixed race lead couple on an American sitcom. It's a big deal. That's like awesome. It's a pivotal historical show. Yeah. But for all practical purposes, anybody who doesn't watch it doesn't know that. So it's I get that sure. anyway. It's not, it's it's accidentally alty, as it were. Yeah. And so yeah. I can I can clamor for attention again, and it works. Okay. But in the beginning, it's like, you're on talk soup, everybody listens. Right. You're a dick. <laughs> so I had to rebuild it. And in doing that, I realized that if I, if I had a Bush joke, and I had many, if I said the word Bush, there was an, a percentage of the audience, their ears would shut. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Because, not, not because they didn't agree with me, because, but because the terrorists will win. Uh, yeah. And I realized that if I didn't make fun of Bush by saying his name, but if I made fun of guys who wear cowboy hats but have no cows, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that premise allowed me to tacitly make fun of the president as adjunct and all of his stupid decisions and lay down a, a myriad of explanations about how that kind of person will make stupid decisions that will, uh -huh. uh, you know, eventually the more important those decisions become, the more dangerous they become to all of us without ever mentioning his name yeah. in the outright. Yeah. But the that allowed those people who's, you know, the minute you said Bush would go, no, no, uh -huh. no, 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 <laughs> it allowed them to laugh. Yeah. And so I realized I was playing a bit of a shell game. And once I realized that I got mad, and then I went, oh, instead of going, I won't do it, I went, okay, if that's the game you're going to make me play, I'm really going to fuck with you now. Right, right. And so, um, in, in sort of a hat-related thing, I started fucking with the Pope. Mm-hmm. Because it's, you know, and, and then I made up this whole bullshit story about how how the why the Pope wears a big hat is to fend off bears because back in the 12th century when they would drag him around in a cube you know a bunch of guys carrying him uh, through the woods if a bear showed up they, all those guys would chuck it and run they were all paid to be there and here was the lonely Pope in the middle of the woods and the only thing that would stop a bear is if you're taller than he is so they had to dress him in the biggest outfit possible you know and then I made up this whole story about how they pick a pope by having two of them put on these fighting pope hats and go at each other like rams. And then I would end the bit by saying the essential essence was everything I said just now was bullshit. All that was complete bullshit. But here's the thing. If it turned out to be true, would you be that shocked compared to the other shit that they do? Right. And that gave me Perfect. room yeah. to dick around the edges of it without even picking on the one pope that was in, which would... Sure. But the concept of the pope allowed me to play around the edges. Yeah. The concept, and then, so instead of, I let the, the need for a lie for the comfort of my audience serve me instead of something I wrestled with, I put yeah. a bridle on it and just said, okay, this is the dragon we're riding mm -hmm. together. And, and I think that's your job as a comic. When did it first become, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> when did it first become obvious that that was a thing, it, meaning, at first, if you're sitting at home, I don't know if you had if had headphones and you were listening to the records, 
but like there's this purity of I don't have anybody else cueing me when to laugh. I'm laughing at this thing. This person's speaking to me. This person's doing comedy at me. This is all for me. When when did it become? Uh, and I'm assuming it's later on. Mm -hmm. Once you've done it for a while, that you had to have. Well, not had to, but you wanted to be saying something. Was that or was that ob ob obvious to you from the get go? It was. Yeah. It was. It was. It served. Comedy had to serve a purpose. Okay. Originally, you know, some people will use the court jester as the example. Yeah. Okay. Many people think that the the goal of the court jester was to make the king laugh and the whole court, like he was just the clown for the court. Right. That wasn't the jester's job. The jester's job was to keep the king, who was an inbred maniac, from killing the members of the court that actually made the country run right. by shitting on them in front of him and lowering their status so they felt he felt safe around them. So yeah. he could, he, they would lower, he, this guy would come in, fuck with all of them, but not him, mm -hmm. prove he was best, shit on them, and then they could go about their own, it was their, their own safety, it was yeah. this valve to let the king out of him because if he didn't the chancellor in, far, in charge of fucking farming would suddenly have way too much power and he knew all the farmers and what if they all got together and I don't trust this guy and whack mm -hmm. and then suddenly you've killed the only fucking guy who knows how to farm really well Yeah. and the inbred you know, turkey leg eating asshole who just killed his wife isn't going to come up with a good plan. He's he's idiocracy waiting to happen. You know, he's yeah. going to look for Gatorade to pour on the plants, right? Because it has electrolytes. And uh, and so the jester was there to take the piss out of the court, so the king would lose his mind and kill all the useful people. The American public is not the chancellor; it's the king. Mm -hmm. Americans are kings. We have now decided not that we want a real democracy, but that we want to be kings. We want to sit in our big easy chair throne with our remote control scepter sitting in front of a box full of jesters going off with his head, off with his head, uh -huh. off with his head, off with his head, which is what changing a channel is. Off with his head, off with his head. Um, and as somebody whose head was in a box for both I Love the 80s and Talk Soup, maybe I'm a little more sensitive to this <laughs> channel flipping circumstance than others. But I became very aware that the, the, the court aspect of humanity, our own individual good choices we make towards our own families, towards what jobs we do and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. can be overrun by our idish, dickhead, road rage prick that lives inside of our lizard brain. Sure. And so what the comic is there for is to act as an intermediary to make the lizard brain calm the fuck down so the rest of us can get about our lives a bit. Yeah. Besides also debugging social structures as a mechanic, because that's evolutionarily why we exist. Mm -hmm. Comedy in higher social orders actually exists so that we can debug the more complex systems, because we all, in social interactions, we create cul-de-sacs where everything goes wrong. And, yeah. and we have to have somebody go, everything's wrong, this, this way, everybody back out this way, yeah, yeah, this yeah. is wrong, we all do this and it's stupid, don't walk down this road anymore. Right. And that's what a comic's job is. Maybe. Yeah. But also is that court gesture to keep the dumb among us from kind of ruling the sway. Mm -hmm. So we walk up and we kind of gather us all in one big family and go, we all make these simple mistakes. Yeah. And then there are certain people who make these big dumb fucking mistakes. Yeah. And I'm going to shit on them for a little while. Right. And so people don't think that's them because they want to be right 
rather than they would be happy. So they will look at that person that I'm making fun of and go, that can't be me. I would never do that. And from that right. point on, hopefully they will not engage in that behavior ever again. Exactly. There's something or, to be said about the shame that comes from somebody comically pointing out some shit you just realized you weren't doing, you, you yeah. realized you were doing wrong. Oh yeah. And I know that, I, I, I mean, when I was a young man and maybe a little stupid, well, definitely a little stupid. I mean, there are definitely times someone would make a joke and I'd be like, oh, you're, you're, you're right. I, I should never ever, I, you know, I, I, there's a shitty side of me that I'm not yeah, right. there, you know? Right. And it's just, and it gives you an excuse to not do it again and to laugh it off. If of you did, you don't even have to catch yourself in public. No. You see somebody else doing it and you laugh amongst your friends about it and you stop, you all stop doing it. And if, if that's the goal that comedy serves ultimately, mm -hmm. yeah. it's an incredibly important yes. job. Yeah. Yeah. It is the glue of society mm -hmm. that keeps it from eating itself. We are literally responsible for the rage, misery, and sorrow not becoming the dominant controlling emotions. Yeah. Yeah. Unnecessarily and 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 curiously uh, unfairly, because if you look at the balance of life, it is 80% good and 20% shit. Sure. sure. Um, but our lizard brain wants to focus on the 20% because that's the part that puts us in danger, and so it's his job to keep us alive, so that's what he'll look at. Sure. And But the 80%, if you don't know that that 80% is there, then you think 20% is all there is, and in focusing on that, you bring more of that 20%, and that blossoms into your 80%, and the 20% becomes this shitty little happiness you cling to like an asshole. Yeah. yeah. So, as a comic, <laughs> that's our job, and so fuck yeah, I consider it important. Yeah. It's medicine. Yeah. It's, it's really good. medicine. Is it, does it help keep you on track too? I mean, if, if I mean, you, you seem like a very, obviously you're very strongly opinionated, but I mean, if, does doing your own comedy ever help bring you back to the center of you, ever? It, uh, it's a, res you have a responsibility to be centered, otherwise the comedy that you have will be too obtuse. Sure, sure. Uh, I, I think it's important like, I, I, you know, in many reasons, it's why I fly coach even when I don't necessarily have to, mm -hmm. and why I shop and do all my own shit. Like, I have an assistant, but it's mostly for doing calendars and sure. scheduling and yeah. that kind of stuff. Yep. You know, the stuff heart that... Heart attack shit? Yeah. Uh -huh. The heart attack shit? Yeah. Like, I don't... Nobody needs to do that, no. you know, except, but it has to be done. Uh -huh. And, and uh, it's better that I'm out in the world and taking my son to the playground and that, mm -hmm. those kind of things, because... That's the stuff that's the bonding, circular, social stuff that needs to be picked through, dissected, and addressed. Yeah. Yeah. And the more I do that, the better my material is. Mm -hmm. If I go see, like, like I, I went and saw the Guardians of the Galaxy premiere last night. As a geek, that's one I would have no problem seeing in a regular theater. Uh -huh. I'll go buy a ticket. I sit at a premiere and I'm like, there's far too little popcorn. <laughs> And nobody's having as much fun as I am. Uh -huh. um, I prefer that, yeah. and and that's when I will sit in. The, you know, had I not been that kind of person where I only go to those kind of things because mm -hmm. I arguably could, I could see eight, ten, fifteen movies a year just by going to premieres sure. just in L.A. enough. Yeah. I wouldn't have been in the theater when I first saw the Noah. Uh, trailer come up and stood up and went what the which is what I did I was so pissed when the Noah trailer came up that I acted out and had I not had that that wouldn't have been the impetus for probably a 20 minute bit on Noah's Ark that I needed to do yeah um, alright I don't want to keep you any further but I, I 
Normally, at yeah, the end you of an do. Ep- yeah, I, you do. Yeah, because it's do. fascinating. Yeah. Let's right. be honest. You know, I mean, you know, but I, 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 I've been holding back on fanboying, so I'm doing understood. Good, you know, I appreciate saying? that. So, yeah. um, the uh, normally we ask somebody to uh, say why they would recommend a certain album. We haven't really stuck with one album, but if there's yeah. one album that's in there that is central to you, and people like, treat treat people as though they've never heard it, maybe they don't know that that artist that well. Right. Is there one in there that's so seminal. So yeah, seminal. I mean, I, I would have to go with Black Ben the Blacksmith just because it's the harder one to find. Like, okay. if I recommend Wild and Crazy Guy or, you know, or Let's Get Smaller, even Toledo Window Box or, uh, you know, Harlan Does It Again or those kind of things, those are a little more, especially for a comedy audience, those are a little more common in that regard that yeah. you, that part of the lexicon, you may know that one already. Yeah. Okay. But it's a... That of Richard's stuff, it's a little more deep reads and sonically ill-prepared. Uh-huh. But it is goddamn functional. I did. I was on um, Raw Dog on comedy, and I got to take over and play whatever I wanted. Uh-huh. And that was that one bit. Black Ben the Blacksmith was damn near my whole segment because it's almost eight minutes long. That's awesome. Yeah. But it's so you know, you know, people. If you're a comic and you want to be a comic, you have to. Uh, ha- you got to get Bill Cosby himself. You got to get uh, all of Carlin's lexicon because he'll you'll know what material has been covered better than you can ever cover it. Yes. And you can just decide not to deal with it. Mm-hmm. You got to get Charmageddon, my album, because uh, I'm, that shit is fine-tuned, mm-hmm. motherfucker. Um, you you have to get a comic that you hate. Yeah. You have to find somebody that sucks. Yeah. And you that has nine albums out. Yeah. And you gotta pick one, you gotta listen to the whole thing end to end. And I don't and I gotta tell you which one it is, uh-huh. but you can pick any number. That's that's and you gotta listen to how they've successfully actually concocted multiple albums and been successful doing it, especially yeah. if you're a comic. Yeah. So you get mad. <laughs> so when I write jokes, it's the same way I write songs a lot of times. If it doesn't just come out of inspiration, it comes one or two ways. I will put on when I'm writing songs, the greatest concert I have on DVD or video or on YouTube, I will do, you know, Kiss 1972 in this little fucking ballroom in New York uh-huh. in black and white, and it's just a fire in their gut, and they're just burning the shit, and they're using flame pots in a place with 12-foot ceilings, shit. and they're wearing you know, just fucking awesome. Or, you know... Uh, Metallica, you know, live shit binge and purge, uh-huh. or Peter Gabriel's so, mm-hmm. um, you know, just uh, those that con- those concerts where you're just like, God damn, that's how you do it, mm-hmm. you know, and that's very much Eddie Murphy comedian. Yeah. That's very much um, uh, Bill Cosby himself. That's um, very much uh, you know Chris Rock's first special. It's very much uh, what I would say is Billy Crystal a comics line. Steve Martin, you can actually watch that live while yeah. Crazy Guy, that's available. Um, you watch the big shit. You watch the inspiring, oh my God. But if you watch too much of it, you'll think you can't top it. Of course. And yes. you'll, get, you'll get nervous. So then, you watch that and you stop. And you find some derelict, piece of shit, pedestrian crap to watch. <laughs> the lamest wedding jokes and fucking fast food jokes and whatever. Just find somebody awful. Yeah. And you have to watch the whole thing. 
with a notepad next to you. And what you will do is you'll start writing jokes that have nothing to do with what he's saying on stage. You'll just write jokes because you're so fucking mad and you hate the premise of everything he's saying or she's saying that you'll go, fuck this. You want to you know what a joke's about? I'll fucking show you, fella. And that just get and the same thing with concerts. I, if I'm running to write a song, I will watch that, and then I will go see a shit band live. Uh-huh. And I'll sit there and I'll go, they're fucking this up for everyone in this room. Mm-hmm. And I care so much as an audience member for what I would like to say, and for my fellow audience members, that I will go home and write a song that kicks ass. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. It's it. Yeah. That's the recipe, man. Go see something you hate. Go see a shitty open mic. Don't take anybody's premise. Don't write anybody's, like, don't redraft their joke. Don't go, they missed the joke here. They could have blah. Fuck that off entirely. Write stuff that's totally different from what you're seeing on stage, but just get mad. Yeah. I like it. Most people come on and they say, just keep working, keep working, you'll do it, you'll do it. No. I like the passion that people don't talk about often. Well, you got, yeah, you nitpick the work. The work has to come. And, you know, the the Carlin methodology, because I met Carlin at... Uh, when I was at uh, Aspen, I never got to do Aspen. I was always denied. I was I auditioned and they would say no. Really? And one and the woman who used to book it actually called my manager and said there is nothing special about Hal Sparks. <laughs> like fuck you, wow. go out of here. just say no. But yeah. go out of the way. Like it was like dickish. Yeah. She's no longer in the industry, by the way. It doesn't right. even work involved in comedy in any way. Good. But it was very distinct. Couldn't get up there. So I said, fuck it, I'm going anyways. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go up there and schmooze. I don't care what happens. <clears throat> I actually had more time in front of the audiences there than the people doing the shows did. So I would stand in line and joke with whoever was with me, make them laugh, and then I would get business cards. I booked so many shows oh my God. just being in line at shows at Aspen that I wouldn't have gotten had I been on stage. But I was there and I watched this thing on with Carlin. We were just, he, was, he did a talk or whatever. And unfortunately, the, the interview of him was fairly pedestrian. Uh-huh. It was all like historical and violent. Like, you can look all that shit up. Who gives a sure. fuck? Yeah. Especially as comics or people who love comedy. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so basically, he, uh, as I was leaving, I, you know, I, I ducked out, and they were bringing him out a side door, and I, then the audience got let out, and they ducked him into a little like elevator lobby mm-hmm. with, where they could shut the door, and it was me and him and two of his handlers that were working for the festival yeah. were just trapped there as people were walking by until they passed. And it was just this weird, uncomfortable silence for a few minutes. And I said, I'm, I'd be an asshole. First of all, uh, you're my hero comedically. I would be an asshole if I didn't ask you for advice. And he simply said, write everything down. Even your shittiest, dumbest joke idea. Because someday it may be the bridge between two great pieces of material that explodes an idea. Yeah. Write it all down. And I keep copious notes. I use Evernote now. But I I have all kinds of, like... Hard bound, not loose leaf, not mm-hmm. ring bound. Hard yeah. bound books that I would write jokes in, just pages. What he would do is basically write this kind of ideas. Take a concept, mm-hmm. be a mercenary about it. And I did this with sleep. I have a bit on sleep that I'm very proud of. Mm-hmm. But it was my first mercenary bit okay. where I went, I don't actually have this problem. I don't have a problem sleeping. But it's so prevalent that it needs to be dealt with. Okay. And so I sat down and I, you, you make three columns and you write, write everything you immediately think about sleep or whatever the co- topic is, mm-hmm. driving a car, whatever it is. Everything that immediately comes to mind, the gas pedal brakes, the windshield wiper, putting shit in your, getting your insurance, why you have, like just having insurance, yeah. super list. Everything that immediately comes to mind. And you write down everything you've ever heard 
cliche-wise about driving a car, any bullshit, you know, in the second column, you're right. Anything that you've ever heard somebody say okay. about driving a car, about the, what, the, what they hate about driving, what they like about driving, or the problem they've had, even like, oh, this light's been on, and I haven't gone to the fucking thing, or I don't know sure. when to schedule my that, uh, maintenance required, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. Anything you've heard of anybody else. And then on the third one, you brainstorm how those two columns make you feel. Okay. You basically just start writing the ideas. They come, and those will essentially be the punchlines. You'll start your brain, your comedic brain, will start mashing all that shit up in a smoothie, and you'll start coming out with the essential essences of your punchlines. Yeah. And at that point, you'll start clicking jokes. You'll start awesome. banging jokes out yeah. if your brain works comedically. Of course, it will, yeah. and it will if it's a if it's a habit. Mm -hmm. um, Carlin used cards, I think, a lot of times. Okay. He would peg cards up and then he would draft out his show that way almost like a screenplay yeah and he would write out pieces memorize them and then he would start organizing the, the things but he would do this three column kind of list and then this big page of writing a monologue he would write it out yeah. you know and try to create a beginning middle and end and resurgence Chris Rock writes songs clearly uh -huh. they have choruses yeah you know I ain't saying he should have done it but I understand mm -hmm. like that yeah you know what I mean mm -hmm. they, always go back to it like, and he gets to it, builds to a, a present, the verse, yeah. the verse, the verse. Uh, and he should have done it, but I understand. He goes back to that bit. That's the chorus. Yeah, yeah. Carlin actually gave it away in one of his specials, and I want to say it was in the round when he's talking, and he goes on this bit about time. What time is it? And he messes it up at one time. Uh -huh. Some people will say what time it is. Sometimes, what time is it? Uh-huh. And he goes... I get stuck doing these ballads, man. And he says ballads. <laughs> and it was such a wake-up call for yeah. me. Yeah. It's so good. He writes his act like you need a ballad. Mm -hmm. you got to pace your audience. And so some of his bits are fucking rock songs. Awesome. And some of them are ballads. Yeah. And you got to write a ballad for your crowd. Yeah. And his ballads had these callbacks, these, like, soft yeah. choruses that he would go back to in concept. It's so good. And, uh, and, and sometimes what it is is that thing you write down, that cliche you heard, is so strong, it's the bit. Sure. Sure. And then what you do is you just keep pegging that to prove the premise of that cliche over and over and over again. Yeah. And then at the end you can either undercut the cliche entirely and ruin it yeah. for comedic effect. Uh-huh. Or you can super reinforce it. You, do, you nail in the coffin. Yeah. And if you look at like... Uh, you know the biggest, the greatest bullshit story ever told. Of his his diatribe on religion. Yeah. But he loves you. And he needs money. <laughs> He's all powerful, all knowing. Can't balance. Can't handle money. You know. <laughs> and he just hits that. Just beats up on this. He's great, but he sucks. But right. He's great, but he sucks. But he's great, but he sucks. And it keeps getting worse to the point where the last one is because this is a man we're talking to it about. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so he lets you in on that. It's so good. Yeah. So I, I, you know, be a mercenary. Pick something fucking aspirin. Yeah. Take, you know, like, just painkillers. Everybody's addicted to painkillers. Mm -hmm. How much fuck until the, you're all... Are you 90% pain? Is that why it kills you? Like that kind of thing. Like mm -hmm. it's that simple. Like I'm, that's me just going on that idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's because my brain is now sort of hardwired to do that system. Sure, sure. And so I will peel through stuff. 
and you'll write little, yellow, small, and you'll write, of you course, know, write course. an aspirin a day, it takes a heart attack away, and you'll write, you know, you know. I have one aspirin joke that I tell about one of my openers, Charlene May, who opens for me or whatever, does all this bitch about her husband, cheated on her with a bunch of whores and yada yada, uh -huh. and that's her whole shtick. At one point, she's got a big blow-up ending. It's great. It's terrific. And I come on and I go, you know, I've occasionally gone, you know, everybody, Charlene May, bitter as an aspirin sandwich. And I just love that <laughs> analogy in the picture of somebody just two pieces of bread full of aspirin just crunch. Oh, it's upsetting. Yeah, right. That's, that's it's really awful. upsetting. But it's, a, you know, it's a, it, like, to me, that was a magical analogy that popped into yeah. my head. And it's mostly because of storage. Yeah. You just start storing. Yeah. And the other piece of advice is you need to know 20% more about your topic than anybody in your audience yes. could possibly. Yeah. So if you're going to do surgery jokes because you had surgery, mm. you have to know that if there's a surgeon in the audience, you have to know 20% more than he does. Yes. Right. At least about your experience or the receiving end of it so that you could surprise him. Mm -hmm. Because what you'll do is you'll stiffen him up or he'll stop you. Yeah. Um, or And that'll cascade to his table and that'll grow. Mm -hmm. So you have to overwhelm them with your knowledge. So if you're going to go after a topic, bury yourself in it. Yeah. Do the work because yeah. it's an art form and that might that burying yourself in the work might come up with the holy shit moment. You know, that pussy joke that I had that got ripped off and given to Betty uh, um, White at one point. My, really? Yeah, like they do this bit like Wait Betty White gets quoted yes. whatever, and it's my bit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, which is not weird because my friend Marianne Williamson who's an author and she's running for Congress, she has a quote it was actually people uh, give to Nelson Mandela. Well, Nelson Mandela was quoting her. And it has the, the quote has the word fabulous in it. There's no fucking way Nelson Mandela came up with, came up with a quote that just decided to use the word fabulous in what he was saying. But she's from here, so she said fabulous, right? Oh my God. And so, the, 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 you know, the, that pussy joke, I literally said that premise of, you know, balls and pussy and whatever, because I'd actually been in a fight. Uh-huh. And uh, we're like, I was in a fist fight with some guys or whatever. And, and at one point, like afterwards, I, I said, like, dude, fucking sh show some balls for fuck's sake, because he was the one who started the fight, and I ended up finishing it. And then I jokingly in my head, well, I was like, you know what? Next time, show your balls so I can know what to hit. <laughs> I was like, and then I was like, the premise of the idea is like, hey, show some balls, like, why? So you can hit them easier. And I, like that grew into. Balls are weak and pussies are tough. Uh -huh. A pussy can push a baby through it and retain its size and shape. And balls just so distended good. and nasty. And blah, blah, blah. it just it just became a natural, like obvious. We have inverted as a society both of these metaphors, which make no sense, and carry on as if they're okay. Yeah, yeah. And so I decided, fuck it, I'm gonna write the be all end all bit. And so on Charmageddon, I feel that's the best description and language for that bit that anybody could come up with. Yeah. I feel strongly about that. And I know that it's true because several people have stolen it since of course. and are of course touring, faking their way through it. And people will walk up to them and go, that's how Sparks is because you're using the exact same language. Wow. Wow. Because the language, it's like doing a bit on dentists. You can't do it because Cosby fucking right. wrapped it up. Uh -huh. Can't do a bit about the word stuff and how materialistic we yes. all are because yeah, no, no. Carlin owns it. And mm -hmm. I feel like that's what you should do when you're writing a bit. Yeah. You're welcome to freelance and freeform, but at some point, that's what POV really is, is mm -hmm. how much you're willing to dive into the material that you're talking about. Yeah. It's not just that you're tall or Italian or bald or fat no, or male or female or transgender or yeah. what have you. It's that this is the stuff I give a shit about. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, 
All right, yeah. so, first of all, thank you for doing this. Of course. Um, second of all, obviously, uh, HowSparks.com. Where else can we find you? At HowSparks on Twitter. Uh -huh. The HowSparks Fang page, F-A-N-G, mm -hmm. on uh, Facebook. All right. I'm now verified. Go Ooh, figure. Look right. at that. They've just started verifying Facebook pages. All right. I'm on feed, P-H-E-E-D.com, uh -huh. HowSparks on feed. That's mm -hmm. a really good site. Um, and then on the road, man, come see a show. All right. Bring people. That's the whole thing. You know, it's a live experience. No two shows are the same. I make sure of it. I believe also that you should have three times as much material as you have time on stage. All right. That's your responsibility as an act, so you can juggle. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. It's good. I'm not a stand-up, so I like hearing these things. Yeah, these man. are always brand new to me. Yeah, man. Um, well, thank you again for being here. Everybody, thank you for listening. Mm -hmm. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. Please visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, read our blogs, read our tweets, watch our videos, and read our books. Please subscribe on iTunes, and if you like us, give us a five-star rating and a nice review. You can find us on Facebook.com slash Comedy on Vinyl, Twitter at Comedy on Vinyl, and find everything else at ComedyOnVinyl.com.